Welcome to the Rider Ninja Podcast with your host, Joe Scott Coe. This podcast is where we talk about arts, language, culture, education, and the riding life. Join as we separate the crazy from your life and sort out what's encouraging from what's discouraging, what's safe from what's unsafe, what feeds you from what drains you. Remember, the goal is not just to get through, but to get forward. And now, your host, Joe Scott Coe. forward thinking. Today on forward thinking I want to talk about boundary crossing. When you're a little kid one of the first ways you may remember learning about boundaries is by playing a game either with your siblings or your friends which is the I'm not touching you game and of course the whole premise of this is that you don't want to be touched but you also kind of want to annoy someone and so we learn about boundaries by playing this game where we dance around whether we've crossed into somebody's personal space or we haven't. Of course, society needs certain kinds of healthy boundaries in order to exist, social space. We kind of depend on this. Americans may be more so than other cultures because we're just used to being more spread out. But you could say, you could make the case absolutely that you need healthy boundaries in order for family to function, uh, in order for to have a professional life that's constructive instead of, I suppose, creepy. Uh, and you can even get into something like traffic lanes. We have boundaries in traffic lanes so that we don't all mush together into a big uh, chrome heap. Um, boundaries, though, are also a marker of controversy, as we know. Uh, one of the ways that, in terms of a kind of geopolitical understanding that we use boundaries is to separate uh, uh, physically ourselves as, a, as an us from them as another group of selves. And also this becomes kind of a psychological tool to separate my tribe from your tribe. And that sometimes can be destructive. But we see that throughout history there's always an element of change because people always venture beyond the geographical boundaries and sometimes beyond the ideological boundaries. So we have a history of exploration, which of course can venture into colonialism and just conquering and saying this is my home, now not yours. But we also just celebrated uh, a landing in Mars on Mars, which is certainly not exactly close to us. And you could say that's violating Mars boundaries or neglecting our own boundaries, but it is a boundary crossing and it is a sign of incredible um, progress and innovation. Uh, on your table, you see a lot of fu- food fusion now, which is certainly the result of travel and also um, more interconnectivity through media and so forth. And of course, We've always had the idea of the pilgrimage, whether it's for health reasons or for religious reasons, and this leads to a lot of conversation between people and certainly um, religious and theological understandings or feuds um, or mixing and mingling that, that comes from crossing boundaries. I'm particularly interested uh, for today in the idea of boundary crossing as a creative act. Uh, so not a boundary violation where you have, have um, hurt someone or you have crossed into a territory where perhaps you are not welcome or you're not coming with goodwill, but the idea of um, crossing into a territory where you're creating new art. So thinking about the territory of imagination. You're, you're creating a new opportunity. You're reimagining a possibility and, and bringing some kind of invention to an imaginative space. 
Uh, this is actually much harder to do than we think because often we don't think about the boundaries and the boxes that we have in our own imagination that categorize things and shelve ideas and um, separate genres, for example, in the literary arts. This cannot be that. Um, and some of that is just, again, necessary maybe to function, but um, we could function at a different or perhaps higher level if we challenge that occasionally. So f for my own um, process and my own thinking, some of my most influential literary figures do this kind of thing. Uh, they sometimes will cross... Um, boundaries, say, inside their career. They will do literary criticism and novels and poems and plays and they write introductions to other people's books and they're basically a virtuoso of form. They don't, they don't feel necessarily stuck or committed in one area. They want to ex explore all of them. But also what happens is inside single works of art you may see different kinds of blending or hybrid forms um, and it's kind of a challenge to the reader and I, I welcome that, I think that that's exciting. But another type of thing that we often, well we don't so often see um, is a, a, you could say a boundary crossing of career pathway where someone is in an academic track, quote-unquote, and they're not supposed to, quote-unquote, do more creative work, and they do. Um, or they're a creative artist and they want to um, go into the academy and they want to do scholarship. So this war between the quote-unquote creative and the quote-unquote analytical I think is kind of a false one, but it actually is something that we tend to cling to. And the, the writers that I, I tend to really um, admire and kind of aspire to be uh, uh, I don't know, not to be like exactly, but to, to be willing to enter into these kind of new forms of consciousness, do this all the time, um, or did this if they're not alive anymore. Uh, Gloria Anzaldúa mixes genres, um, mixes languages even, so she crosses that boundary, mixing Spanish and English and Spanglish in her works. Um, Margaret Atwood uh, crosses into every genre territory, and she's done invention and so forth. Um, you know, so she's not she's she's looking to make and to add things, not necessarily just to stay in one area. Kenneth Burke, who, if you've read him at all, you probably read him in a college textbook where you studied uh, five ideas that supposedly attached to literary criticism, but in fact have been really reduced. And if you look at the volume of his work and the depth of, of his insight about um, things from uh, whether we should have a social safety net or not, to the role of literary criticism and its relationship to religion, it's, it's much more vast than uh, just uh, who, what, where, when, and why. And then um, Richard Rodriguez, who I think is complicated not only in the way that he engages other texts and um, is willing to is willing to talk about things that are happening in the everyday, but also thinking about the longer view and also going back into history and is willing to, to engage questions that relate directly to physical boundary crossings and sexual boundary crossings and religious boundary crossings so that um, we have in, in his work Brown the idea that things kind of go away from their idealized purity and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. So all of these artists uh, work in and outside genre lines and in and outside you know, divisions between the academic and the popular and I, I find that fascinating and I find it challenging. So my question for you today at Writer Ninja Podcast, and oh, I'd love you to come to my website, joscottco.com, J-O-S-C-O-T-T-C-O-E.com. 
um, is to tell me who your favorite boundary crossers are. They might be in the visual arts, might be in film, might be in fashion. Um, maybe there's someone in your family who lived a kind of non-traditional life uh, that, that was interesting and inspiring. And um, I'd be really curious to hear a little bit about that, and I think that, that it, it would do us well sometimes to think about that um, because we're expected to now specialize so early, and yet um, that can eliminate so much uh, richness from, from our opportunities and from our expectations, and um, I think it's a really exciting opportunity to think about. So who are your favorite boundary crossers? Uh, send us a note at the Rider Ninja podcast, joescottco.com, and we'll continue the conversation there. Now let's tune in to Ninja Chat. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing Stephanie Hammer, who has just had a book published called Sex with Buildings, Prose Poems, and it's just come out from Dancing Girl Press just a couple of months ago. And uh, Stephanie Hammer is a writer of poetry, fiction, and uh, nonfiction, and most recently her work has been in publications such as Belleville Literary Review, uh, Square Lake, Rhapsodia, Cafe Ariel, uh, Locus Novus, Big City Lit, Inlandia, Pearl, and Hayden's Fairy Review, among other places. And what's particularly interesting is that uh, Stephanie is uh, a professor of comparative literature and creative writing as well at UC Riverside in Southern California. Um, in fact, her first book, published several years ago, was about Friedrich Schiller, who is one of the founders of German national literature, and this was, in fact, her published dissertation um, called Schiller's Wound, which explores the influence of psychological trauma in the theater and how Schiller was dealing with that. But in the meantime, Stephanie has been creating uh, literary works, and she has continued to teach in comparative lit, um, and she is also a two-time Pushcart nominee. So in our conversation, we had the chance to talk a little bit, not just about the specific works in Sex with Buildings and how they came to be, but also what it's like to live in between the margins of the academy and the quote-unquote creative and um, what the benefits are of being a boundary crosser. So give a listen. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the program. Hey, Joe. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for coming. Um, well, we're going to talk first about your book, this wonderful collection of prose poems by Dancing Girl Press called Sex with Buildings. And, awesome. Um, and I wanted to, to get into a little bit first about how you cross boundaries with form and with subjects and um, how you kind of um, sometimes mix subjects that people might find surprising. And uh, so just talk a little bit about how that worked for you. Okay. Well, um, maybe I'll say something a little bit about how the, how the collection started, what its genesis was. Great. Because that'll give you a little bit of an idea of kind of what that mishmash mix-up is all about. The, the bulk of the writing for this collection came out of a cyber playroom that my teacher, uh, Bruce Holland Rogers, created for us kind of, there's a French expression, en marge du cours, kind of on the margins of the class. We were doing a class on short forms, and he created this free space 
for us to play in. And we were invited to riff on the work that we were reading. We were invited to riff off of each other's work. And I just loved that playroom space. And it became a place where I just felt like I could share work. It wasn't being graded by the professor. It wasn't for the class, but it was in a way inspired by the class. Oh, yeah, that's great. And that was, that's kind of how that work got going. So it kind of ranged all over the place, depending on what we were reading that day and how we were feeling that day. And I guess it also really, once again, speaks, you know, speaks to that crazy idea of the rugged individualist writer, because this collection was very much not written alone. I was very much not writing alone. When I wrote it, I was hanging out with people who I just love, uh, very different kinds of writers, some nonfiction writers, a wonderful, wonderful, really twisted YA middle grade kids writer who was kind of my, 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 my other, my sister uh, in, that, in that group, and just really bouncing ideas off of those people. That's great. It, it's interesting because there's a lot of interesting um, encounters and dialogue that's included, so that seems to provide a kind of uh, background for where some of these would come from. There's a clear thread of surrealism through the whole, yeah, the whole collection. Yeah. And that, of course, is, is, is one of my big interests. I'm very interested in, uh, in kind of the legacy of, of, of the Dadaists, the Futurists, and their, you know, their inheritors, the Surrealists, and kind of what can surrealism look like now, and how can it be not not so French, not so <laughs> fancy, not so impossible to understand, but how can we use that play and the, the kind of crazy incongruous images of surrealism and the interest in dreams and the subconscious, how can we use that to make work now? And that's an ongoing interest of mine. A lot of the the work in some way touches on uh, religious or ethnic identity, and, and um, I was no- noticing especially that you were including work about your own conversion to Judaism, um, which some people, of yeah. course, say is not even a possible thing. And so I'm curious. <laughs> right. I'm curious. Quite a number of people say that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I'm curious how it, how it felt to. To put that on paper and then also in an art form, you know, it's not a, it's, it, these things are informative in their way, but they're not, you're not writing an academic essay about it. So how did that feel? Did the surrealism help? And, um, you know, what's the reaction been to it? Can you talk a little bit about that? It's really yeah, interesting. absolutely. No, that's a really, really great question. And one of the things that I love about the unreal is that the unreal can trick you, trick the writer into exploring territory, and not even exploring because that's too conscious, mm. but stumbling into territory that I think the writer, and certainly this writer, would never have had the wherewithal to, to stumble over and stumble over in this particular way. Um, the, uh, the Ars Judaica, which is the first piece in the collection, was directly inspired by this weird collection of kind of postcard length observations by a guy who happens to be a Jewish writer. And there was something about those, those postcards, or the idea of the postcard length entry that I just really loved and it made me think about uh, the mosaic literally you mm. know the shattered shards of the of the of the 10 commandments and that's you know that's kind of what the what the what 
mosaic is and what the word comes from. And I just started writing the the observations that are used in that piece. I've worked with elsewhere, and particular the, in particular the stuff about my father-in-law, who was a German Jew, who I loved very, very profoundly, who's only been dead for a few years, and who I miss a lot, and who was also highly creative. I've tried to write about him before, and somehow this weird little postcard entry format enabled me to produce that reminiscence about him. So oddly, the Ars Judaica piece is, I would say, the most overtly autobiographical of all of the pieces in the collection. And that happened, I think, because of the the wonderful constraints of the of the structure, which kind of enabled these little bursts of memory to come out, mm-hmm. and then I could move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I think I'm definitely someone who responds very well to a structural assignment of some kind. Mm-hmm. You know, write something that only has this many words in it, right? Or write right. something that is only this many lines, right? And I L uses these words. I love that, and uh, and that's certainly was at work in that piece. Can, can I ask you, I mean, the, you know, the, the kind of mirror image is the, the concluding piece, which is the, you know, the sex with buildings piece. Was that also a postcard type of structure that you used? It wasn't a postcard structure, but it was, it, it was directly inspired by a piece by Lynn Kilpatrick that I think it's something like sex with body parts. Huh. It's sex with something. Uh, and that may not be the title, but that's kind of how it's work, uh, works. And it's these lines. And I just loved that. Yeah. And as an, a just totally urban person, I'm not a rural person. I grew up in New York City. I lived in St. Louis. I lived in Geneva, in Montpellier, and now in, in Los Angeles, and also, of course, in Riverside. And I, I find cities really interesting, sexual, fascinating places. And so when I read her poem, I thought, mm, you know, se- you know, sex with what? And I thought, oh gosh, what about you know, what about these amazing, what about all these buildings that I've been in and been in front of? And the piece just just went from there. I think it, the original version might have been longer, and it got pared down. But I didn't edit it all that much in the end. Okay. I, it just kind of came with that with that set of lines and ideas of you know, building one, building two, building three, city one, city two, and so on. Got it. I I was going to ask you about your favorite poem, but now I'm actually thinking about something else, which is okay, which you can still tell we'll talk me. About that. But um, I, I'm one of the things that that is also a strong element in this is um, dialogue with women. Um, you know, there's there's a poem you were just talking about. There is the the poem, which is a which is a kind of meditation on an encounter with a woman in Bloomingdale's. You know, and it kind of there's another woman and another woman and another woman um, about sunglasses, and and it goes on right, from there. Right, um, right. Woman to woman, this is. Yeah, yeah. and then there's there, there are poems referencing you know other poets, and then there's a poem for your daughter, um, and then there's this wonderful play poem. Um, which is the Maria Stewart on Mars, which is really marvelous. So I'm just kind of curious if how conscious that was for you. That's, uh, it's great to talk about this because it wasn't conscious at all. Yeah, great. It just, it just happened. Uh, I've had, tra- you know, 
amateurish training in the theater. I did originally want to be an actress. I went to the American Academy as a, a, a dramatic, of dramatic arts in New York City, which is where Dustin Hoffman went. I went there as a teenager. I very much wanted to be an actor, and then I got to the drama department at my college and said, oh my God, I hate this. I absolutely oh. hate this. Um, I'd much rather talk about books. But the, my interest in the dialogic and the performative, I think, has really, really held on. Uh, the Maria Stewart piece, I'm so glad you love it. It is one of my favorites, and that's because I'm such a huge, enormous fan of the German playwright Friedrich Schiller, who's the reason we are interested in Mary Stewart now. He's the person who made her a famous personality on the stage and wrote this play that is, is still performed all over the place, including Utah. It's being performed there right now this summer. Um, wow. And I, oh, I love th that play, and I love him, and I feel that he's a really weird, really interesting playwright that got kind of swept under the rug because he was Goethe's best friend, unfortunately, oh, dear. And, and had the misfortune to die very young. So Goethe takes it, takes over well, the kind of work that they were doing, and Goethe's the, kind of the famous one. I but see. She, so it's my, it's my Valentine, it's a very weird Valentine to Schiller, who is also a poet and also a professor, by the way. So is kind of a... That's lovely. A, a wonderful role model for me. He's That's a professor who, who was very uncomfortable in the university and ran off to the theater and ran off to poetry. I was going to say, my, yeah, my only encounter with Schiller is through, you know, theory, you know, excerpts of theory, not, not through drama at all. Yeah, yeah. So he's That's been buried under his... Yeah. Yeah, he's been buried on. He's been buried un, under Goethe, uh, and oh. he was interested in homoeroticism. So it's a, it's a perfectly appropriate thing to say. And he's also been buried by by um, German academics in this country. That's really sought to make him kind of. Oh, he's an idealist, isn't he? Great. And it's really he was really a weird writer. And Interesting. I love to try to bring some of that weirdness back. Well, you've got to get credit for your weird, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Well, so so that actually we've kind of segued right into the questions of um, you know influences on you, um, literary influences or or um, artistic influences. You've mentioned the Surrealists and the Dadaists and the Futurists, and and um, you know here we have Schiller. So you know what else, or is there anything else that is? Uh, um, well, the other I'm a big as as is as is clear. I think I'm a big Francophile. I learned French when I was a kid. My maternal grandparents really were Romanovs, and like like many Russian aristocrats, were huge Francophiles and spoke French. So I learned French from them, and um, I grew to absolutely love Baudelaire and Rimbaud and their exploration right. with the prose poem. They're really the inventors in the West of, of the right. prose poem, and I love them. And then, of course, the other person who's a huge influence isn't Western at all and is arguably really the inventor of the prose poem, and that's the Japanese court poet, Seishonaga. Oh, yes, and of course. And Suzu Hitsu, which I think I've been right? Yeah. Yeah. The idea oh, my God. Of the following the brush. I'm going to write this little piece, and it's following the brush, and it is what it is. Right. Some of it's autobiographical, and some of it's incredibly bitchy, and yeah. some of it feels like a poem, and some of it feels like a story, and I think she's huge. I think she's incredibly empowering for women writers. 
she totally lets her inner bitch out, as to, to quote a, for, a former student of mine who said, she's not afraid to let her bitch out, and she really isn't. So she's so liberating because she's so out of the Judeo-Christian, oh gosh, I don't want to be mean thing. She's right. totally mean. Right. And uh, she's also an influence, I think, in this collection. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I can actually, I, it's like, la, I can see that. That's really great. Um, okay, so so one of the things that I think people should know is that this is not your first book, and um, what's what's fascinating, and I think maybe it shouldn't be so fascinating, is that you are making a kind of um, transition in what you're writing from um, a kind of more traditionally academic work into um, the literary, what we call the creative, and I hate the binary, but people use it, so it's there. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and it's a binary that absolutely, uh, absolutely exists for many, many people. It's a, it's a real thing that, we, every, yeah. that we're against. Yeah. So can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it's like to, to press against that, to, to, to claim that dual identity or to, to a, a hybrid identity or a protean, you know, right. character? Right. What, what's Protean's that like? good. Oh, I love that. Um, well, it's been a very strange journey. Um, I struggled for a long time to learn how to write like an academic. Uh, I've always made creative work. Uh, I wrote my first poem when I was six, and I've never stopped, but I kind of went underground when I went to college because it was hard to, it was hard to be recognized as a poet in college somehow. It was a, it, I think it's, it's, hard, it's hard in general when you're making work that's unusual. And this was certainly true for me. And when I got interested in writing academic work, I had to show everybody I was really, really smart. So when right. there was this whole very unpleasant uh, apprenticeship where I had to really train myself to learn how to write in a way that was incredibly difficult to understand <laughs> and so that I would appear very, very smart. And um, then I ha when I started making creative work out of the closet, as it were, <laughs> uh, about a little bit more than 10 years ago, I had to unlearn that. Right. So it's like, oh, okay, now i got to go back to writing like a regular person again. But you know what? I'm not a regular person exactly. I was never a regular person. I'm certainly not a regular person now. So how do I find language that bridges those gaps? And that's very much a work in, pro in, in process uh, for me. Um, I've got work out there that's, that's pretty easy to understand, kind of fairy tale type parables. One is about um, socks and a sock drawer and why can't the socks all get along. <laughs> so I can write in a very simple right. way. And then I've also written some very complex pieces. And I guess in terms of, of the language, I try to use the language that the piece calls for, and um, that's probably the be my best bet. But but hybridizing those two different discourses is is not easy. But I think it's absolutely crucial because writers don't talk to academics, and academics sure don't talk to writers, and so no one knows what the other is thinking. And I think that's bad. Well, the the kind of cool thing is that all this is happening in your brain right now. Yeah. It, and it's a noisy brain. <laughs> thank you for letting me share some of the noise with you. <laughs> thank you for thank you for being here on the show. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Inspirations, tricks, and methods of escape. 
Before I go today, I want to offer you some interesting recommendations uh, in terms of reading and experience for to exploring this idea of boundary crossing. The first is um, my guest today, Stephanie Hammer, will actually be reading at Riverside Arts Walk in the Fresh New Voices series on Thursday, September 6th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Riverside Public Library, which is 3581 Mission Inn Avenue in downtown Riverside in Southern California. Um, it's bound to be a great event. She will be selling books so you can buy a copy of Sex with Buildings, but you can also ask questions about the work. You can ask questions about the idea of um, boundary transgression and what is a prose poem and that type of thing, and it's going to be a great event. If you can't catch the reading, I recommend that you go to Stephanie's uh, website, uh, which is Stephanie Barbe Hammer at Magically Real. If you put Stephanie Hammer and Magically Real in Google, you'll go right to it. But if you want the exact spelling, it's Stephanie with an I-E, Barbe, which is B-A-R-B-E, and then Hammer, as in with a nail, at Magically Real. And um, that, will the, that will take you to her website. And the website title is Sharing, Investigating, and Celebrating the Unreal, the Surreal, the Strange, and the Amusing in Contemporary Literature and Culture. And uh, you can also subscribe to her Twitter feed, and you'll get all kinds of other cool resources about other people who are interested in these questions, and it's great. So again, Magically Real, how is that possible? There's a boundary question right there. So that's a great resource. I also want to recommend two books, both of them out by Norton. Um, one is called Short Takes, T-A-K-E-S, not cakes like you have with your tea. Short Takes, Brief Encounters with Contemporary Nonfiction, and it's edited by Judith Kitchen, as in the room in your house, the kitchen. Um, and this is a fabulous collection of short nonfiction that is um, exploring um, the speculative and the imaginative realm as opposed to merely the didactic and here are my five points and I've proved what you I already knew and now you know it too and that type of form. Um, it's really fabulous. Um, some of them are quite short. I think the longest essay in here is maybe 2,000 words. Uh, some are merely a couple of pages and it's really wonderful. And then last but not least, I want to recommend Flash Fiction Forward, also put out by Norton, um, which is edited by James Thomas and Robert Shapeard or Shepard, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it's S-H-A-P-A-R-D, 80 very short stories. And um, what's great about these, some of them are, a couple of them are, are a page, maybe a page and a half long. If you read back and forth between flash fiction and flash nonfiction or micro nonfiction, it's very interesting how it's hard to tell them apart. And this raises great questions about how do we determine genre, what is the purpose of establishing genre boundaries, and um, what, how do we recognize something that's true when it is true? How can we recognize the truth inside fiction? Uh, and how can we recognize uh, the truth inside the speculative and, and the liminal realm and kind of the dicey realm of our imagination and our recollection when it's expressed in an essay? So uh, all these are great resources, and again, some of them online, a couple of them very easy to buy, uh, and one in person. So if you enjoyed today's interview, I highly recommend you go listen to Stephanie Hammer on September 6th. Um, I will be there. You can meet her. You can buy a book. And meanwhile, you've got lots to think about. So um, we'll see you next time. And please come to the website, joescottco.com, and we'll continue the conversation there. Whoa! 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Rider Ninja Podcast. Visit www.joescottco.com for more information, including this episode's show notes. Send a question, comment, or message through the website and follow Joe on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Joe Scott Co. Check out Joe on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash teacher at point blank. 